So Darla, give me the, the we're going to go from architecture to the garment industry, fashion industry as a whole, but give me your career path up till now. How do we, how do we get a foothold into architecture? How do we end up at Penn State? What's been your mm. path to your current moment? Okay. All right. Um, and you want me to link this to fashion, the, the apparel thing at all, or just the career? Um, let's go to the point where, well, I don't know how, how, how early did you get into fashion? I guess that's, that may be a question to consider. Is it so intertwined with your beginnings within architecture? Well, only that, that, you know, I learned to sew when I was very young <laughs> with my mom and I sewed all my clothes in high school. So it was something that I basically abandoned. It was a, a hobby. It was a skill that I learned. Um, and I was quite good at it. I sewed a three-piece men's suit. <laughs> so I think as a craftsman, I had that. Mm. And a sense of materials and, you know, I, I just, that was a thing for me. But I always knew I wanted to be an architect. I was designing cars. I was designing bridges. I was designing anything I could see. And back then, you know, we didn't have the internet. So I would look in the World Book Encyclopedia. People would say, oh, that's a civil engineer. And I'd look up a civil engineer. And, nah, that's not it. And, oh, that's an interior designer. And I'd look that up. No, that's not it. And finally, I landed on an architect. And that was exactly what it was. But it was definitely a systems inspiration from the get-go. You know, we grew up on a large 1,500-acre farm, and you could not just do, <laughs> you could not grow grain and not be cognizant of weather and implement and soils and insects, <laughs> animals, watching. My dad had this large burgundy ledger, and he would track the migration of animals, he would trap and release so he could test the thickness of hides on animals, which would give him a clue as to, you know, a tough frost coming quickly. And we grew up riding horses. And when I came to Penn State, I actually joined the the farm that did the pet posted the Penn State equestrian team. Hmm. And one fall we I was a share boarder and that's a person who just helps exercise the horses. And one fall, we had this really early, very cold, hard hitting frost. And I called the farm owner and asked, you know, did the horses get their hide? And he said the smart ones did. You know, so there was a, there's a knowledge there about how all of these things come together that, you know, I kind of, I mean, there, there's no education that gives you that. You have to just grow into that kind of thing. Wait, what's um, that mean? <clears throat> a horse getting its hide is that it's uh, the fur sort of growing out. It's thicker because it senses, you know, the smart ones knew how to get ready for that kind of cold. <laughs> and how quickly <laughs> does it happen? They can get that fairly quick. I mean, it's building, but, you know, the older horses that we had, and we were very far north, I mean, it, you know, they were ready. And my dad would inspect that. He had a sense of, and I think it's similar to if you have a cat, I've talked to my vets about that. If you you can get a, a sense of, of how thick their fur is and you can, you know, what's normal, what's shedding. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's just a matter of being familiar with a gauge, I guess, you know. Because a horse and a cow, they definitely look puffy, right? Furry. They boost up mm. and then that all sheds. So so where um, is this? Where did you grow up? What was the, where was the farm? 
Yes, it's called the Bakken Shale. It's close to the Canadian border in North Dakota. Mm. And because of the size of it, when people would ask me, where are you from? I'd say, well, the address was, if you want to look it up, in Stanley, North Dakota, because mm. that was 20 miles away and it was on the county highway that connected into Stanley. But the school that we went to was Powers Lake, North Dakota. That was only 15 miles away. The phone um, landline was through Kenmare, North Dakota. <laughs> the county seat was Bowbells, North Dakota. So, you know, that was 1,500 acres is, is a good amount. But all the farms are pretty good sized there. So for growing grain and very, very flat. Now, is that sort so, of an intergenerational farm or a homestead? How rooted is your family to that land? Yes, my grandfather, Lindbergh, Isaac and Anna Lindbergh. They came from Sweden, settled there, and built their early farm. And then my dad started buying land close to that farm and built his just down the road. Hmm. Um, you know, several brothers kind of in there, and brothers would share equipment. Equipment, even now, we were back several years ago now for a centennial reunion, and during the 4th of July, and, you know, the parade of large <laughs> tractors that go through the streets. I mean, these are half a million dollar machines. So hmm. it's a, a shared enterprise. And so you're a little gal on this farm. You're looking through a, a, an encyclopedia of sorts and you architect. How old are you when it clicks for you? I mean, seriously, I have drawings. I have three ring binders and folios of these early drawings. And it had to have been like first grade, third grade. <laughs> Seriously, there the spatial thinking of these things is remarkable. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm drawing perspectives, and I have no clue what a perspective is. And you're know, like in a room, a bedroom. If the bed is the largest thing in the room, that's what the bedroom was. And then I would draw a dresser as I would see it. You know, an elevation, mm. but in plan. That's interesting. And you're in it's, first grade. Yeah, fascinating. You know, I'm sure I'm looking at Better Homes and Gardens or what are Ladies Home Journal, <laughs> what are some of these magazines that, you know, if they had houses and so forth and looking at what those agencies were <laughs> for presentation and, and getting some. And another, Meredad actually says, that's the book you need to write next. I would watch a sitcom or some kind of TV, you know, I think we probably all do this. And, you know, I remember vividly, thinking it was a TV show. I'm blanking on the name, but they, you know, I could see the plan and, and you'd come into this door and it had a stairway and, oh, the Cosby show, the Bill Cosby show. Mm. So from the outside, you were in, you know, a townhouse, party walls. And then you come into the house and there's a stairway to the side. And at the landing of the stairway, there's a window, <laughs> but from the outside, you see that there's this is a party wall. Oh, um. and, right? You remember mm. the Cosby living room? And then the fireplace that was there, that made sense. That backed backed up. But then, you know, so there's all these incongruities. And I would, a, a, another one, it was, uh, it's a horse show out of Canada. And I was tracking what the sort of interior rooms that they're filming in. And I thought, no, that can't happen. So this sort of outside, inside 
there's no reconciliation of, of these two. And I would do that. So I would draw these floor plans and sort of think, you know, busted, that's not right. And this is grade school. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, yeah, we were just watching this documentary on Alvar Alto, who's the more we sort of learn about him, he feels like the more human of the or more sort of down to earth of that era of architect, you know, of the ones we study. But he narrator describes it saying, you know, Alvaralto went through this painting period in his life and then, you know, wavered a bit and then eventually landed on architecture. And so we were thinking, oh, it's like, you know, somebody who's actually come into architecture later in life. But then the narrator says later on, yeah, when he started architecture at the age of nine. So that yeah. means he was wavering in painting till the age of nine and then solidified mm-hmm. down to architecture. I mean, to, to mm-hmm. land on it that quickly, I, I can't understand it. I have some memories of, like, I think some of the earlier memories I have are of buildings. And I think one was an IMP building, but, and I drew plans and things of this sort, but I could never, I mean, I think I was in my early 20s before I thought of architecture to begin with. So it's always it's strange and fascinating to, you know, hear of folks who were analyzing yeah. the Cosby house, you know, in plan yes. in yes. first grade. Um. <laughs> Yeah, the Brady Bunch. I mean, you know, that's later, but, and I know that I didn't have any, you know, if you were to say, oh, she had some kind of book like Frank Lloyd Wright, I had nothing like that. Mm. I, and I always describe myself as a Matilda type. (laughs) You know, when I was in third grade, I got interested in piano lessons and I learned that my third grade teacher did this. She gave piano lessons and I approached her. I didn't talk to my parents about it. I just said, you know, could we set up during lunch hour? I could, you know, because I'm out on the farm, right? I can't necessarily mm-hmm. come after school. So could we during lunch hour, could I take piano lessons from you? And I didn't have a piano at home. And she said, you know, okay, um, that we would go down to the parsonage, that which was down the hill from our grade school. And she would give me piano lessons, and then that would be one day a week. And then on the other days, I could go and practice. So I'd give up my lunch hour mm. <laughs> every day to do these piano lessons. And so I set this up, and she gave me this fold-out cardboard piano keyboard to take home. And so I, I had that home, and I'd be sitting on the floor, you know, practicing my piano on my little cardboard keyboard. And one day I remember my parents came, their legs were right here. (laughs) I'm sitting on the floor looking at their legs and I looked up at them and they looked down at me and they said to each other, do you think we should get her a piano? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I think I was definitely a self-starter interested in, in things. Uh, I remember one of the priests that was, at our, I'm an Episcopalian, the church that I go to, um, he said that farmers, they're, they're very reflective. They sit on tractors for hours, you know, throughout the day. And so they spend a lot of time in their head hmm. <laughs> thinking about a lot of things. So, yeah, but so back to the. Yeah, we're in grade uh, schools. How do we get to school. middle school and, and high school? <laughs> So, you know, I think, and another interesting thing that happened probably all around about the same time, you know, penmanship was introduced in third grade. And I love the exercises that we would do to, and I guess they don't do that anymore, to refine your penmanship. And then I learned that my sister was doing this with her left hand. 
that's interesting. I have a, she's only 15 months younger than me. And so I thought, I want to try that with my left hand. And I ended up writing mirror image with my left hand, like perfect script, but backwards <laughs> mirror oh. image. Yes. So I, that's my, um, my bar room trick. <laughs> <laughs> when when we get together and everyone you know does something on a napkin or whatever I say well here's and it's a true story I one time did that oh I can contribute right and I wrote backwards and everyone's like wow that's weird <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't funny it was just weird I thought I was playing along um you can still do this or is it is it vanished? I, yes yes <laughs> I entertain my, my students I say tell me something to write and so I just write it on the chalkboard I I just you know don't even know I can't you know it and I'm quite fast with it and then we take a mirror and look or look at it it's like oh my god there it is <laughs> so you may have been a da Vinci in a past life or something because he, he did this too been. right yeah might have been <laughs> is that yeah. am i remembering correctly like he would take those kind of mirror notes so that people couldn't read his no. his script yeah, I, I haven't done i haven't done that i don't <laughs> <laughs> my notes are mostly just just drawing so i always knew i wanted to be an architect absolutely i was super excited and and at the time yes i had to figure out how to write a way for you know college material and figure that all out everyone goes to their state college. And I also thought that, you know, I'd have a backup plan that, and I didn't know what that was, but I knew architecture was not a, a woman thing <laughs> necessarily. Yeah. What, you know? what year is this? I mean, when you enter university, what's the. Yes. 1976. Okay. Graduated high school, 75, but I credit my parents. They, you know, I say I was a Matilda and that's mostly because we were you know, just sort of on our own. We were definitely, you know, the sort of free range children. Mm -hmm. You know, we were no cell phones. You're, you're riding horse all day long, all over the county, all over, you know, the countryside. And so a lot of independence and we worked, we definitely had to work hard hauling bales, driving tractors, raking hay, you know, so we worked hard. But I never really remember having, I didn't have household responsibilities. Like I didn't have to cook. I didn't have mm. to clean. I voluntarily, I loved washing floors, but, <laughs> but I just, but it, there wasn't, uh, you know, and I explain it in the sense that my dad, when he, so he's born 1914 and when he turns 16, he's in the middle of the depression. Mm. So He's quitting school to drive truck for the WPA building roads. And then when he's 28, he's been building his farm. He's the only unmarried male in the family. So he gets drafted to World War II in the mm. army. And they sent him to San Diego, basic training. And he was training in jujitsu martial arts. And he was quite good at it. Apparently, they asked if he wanted to stay stateside and teach other, you know, um, draftees. Mm. And he was a smart ass. And he says, you know, I didn't sign up for this war. So they said, okay, get on the boat. Mm. <laughs> uh, so he ended up four years on the front lines in the Pacific. And, you know, the stories he would tell us are, you know, I mean, he saw bayonets through pregnant women, you know, buddies in the foxhole next to him being killed. And, you know, so pretty horrific. And we could piece together that, 
you know, he had partial hearing in one ear um, and we could never go to a 4th of July celebration. He couldn't handle the fireworks, mm. the sound of all that. So, and, but now it's returning, it's 1946 and, you know, it's happy days. He gets to raise a family on a, build a farm. And I truly believe, I mean, part of it might be that they're Scandinavian. There's no drama <laughs> but also, I think when you go through something like that, there's not much that's wrong. Mm. So I think you have a pretty big window of trust, you know, sort of how bad can it, you know, right? Yeah, it, it, yeah. You know, where it's not necessarily, your focus is on real things like farming and good kids aren't, it's, I mean, you worry about their safety. They would tell us things like the bars close at one o'clock, you know, where do you want to be? And so we would tail at home. It was a different time, different mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to go to NDSU, North Dakota State University. That's what the architecture program was. And I was really lucky that the my chair of the department, when I got there, his first year was the same year, Cecil Elliott. Um, and he studied under Gropius at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And he was a fabulous, I remember I found a way to get down to an orientation. There was a women's basketball coach who graduated from NDSU. And I asked her if I could ride down to Fargo with her one time, you know? And so we did. And I, so my parents, you know, just sort of allowed me to make this stuff up, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting in the orientation and Cecil asked all the kids around the room, how many of you had a drafting class, architectural drafting class in high school? You know, and half the kids raised their hands. I couldn't do that. And then he said, so how many of you had an art class in high school? And the other bunch raised their hands. I was the only one who couldn't raise my hand for either of those. And he looked at me and he said, well, we'll just have to reteach them. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> <In the right place. laughs> um and what's the what's my, the composition of the cohort? Are you the one of the few women, the only woman? Yes. Yes. In my graduating class there were three, but I'm the only one who continued on into anything related to practice and teaching. So did you, yeah. So did you recognize that? I mean, given that you were coming from sort of a, I mean, yeah. it sounds like architecture is a, I mean, you knew you wanted to do it, but as a field, it sounds like it was still quite mysterious to you. So did you understand that you were entering into this non-female no, domain before that, you arrived well, at? You know, I did. But, you know, I've reflected on this a lot. And I have to say, my dad never once, and my mom, they never once said, oh, you you shouldn't be on those tractors or, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. Or you, you know, don't do that. Don't do that. That's, you know, they never, ever said that. Mm. <laughs> um, we were, uh, I was allowed to, and, you know, when it came time to think about, we never had a discussion like, shouldn't you go into, you know, what else would there be? You know, English, I was a straight A student should you go into something else? No, all, I was always drawing and designing. I remembered, uh, my sister would tell you this too. I would get these little ball bearings from some of the tractors or <laughs> machinery. And I would treat these little ball bearings as people and I would move them in my floor plans. I would be making, <laughs> yeah, I would be making roads with my fingers, like, you know, country dirt roads. You got two you know, there's a tread line 
I'd be making roads through the, the grass in the lawn where there was like gaps. <laughs> and I loved collecting cars and um, I would, I loved designing cars, anything I could, I, if I saw it, I would come home and design it. So design another one like it. You know, if I saw a sitcom or a show, I'd sort of map out what's going on there. And then I'd try to puzzle out, uh, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. How could that level, that doesn't work. <laughs> so it's just interesting. So for some, I mean, can you identify the, because it's from what I briefly know about the history, but like, so post-World War II history in the U.S. tends to be, or culture tends to be a bit more conservative, right? Mm-hmm. And that there's some mm-hmm. sort of retreat and, and gender norms and standards become sort of heavily emphasized. So is your being on a farm somehow insulating you from that kind of Americana? Okay. Yeah. And also our teachers, I mean, I think about this from that perspective too. You know, when someone, say people were graduating from Grand Forks or whatever in education, you know, post or, or secondary education or whatever, and the teaching jobs would be in the larger cities. And so what's available to someone, you know, fresh young teachers right out of teaching school. And so they would have to find these little rural schools. And we always had young, vibrant, amazing teachers. And one of my math teacher, he put together, you know, I mean, my graduating class from high school had 18 kids in it. So it was it was just a private education. And the math guy, he put together this little program over a lunch hour. You know, winters are brutal. So lunch years spent in the gymnasium and we would go up on the stage and we were playing chess, lifting weights, pre- <laughs> you know, pressing. And he gave us uh, some other kind of tutoring in an advanced calculate some calculus courses and things like that so I feel like we were really privileged Mm. Um, and so who knows what I mean I was able to do anything I wanted I was in choir I was in band I was a cheerleader I was in track you know in plays we could do anything we wanted you know you you have a small pool of students like that you kind of need Mm. to recruit so I think you know confidence and yeah I think we just sort of there wasn't anyone really holding you back I think about what when my sons went through high school and how some of the peer pressure that you know large high schools and Mm. (laughs) um you know I feel I wish they could have had an experience like I had so you know Mm. just building self-esteem or you know and then when I did get into college in in architecture I felt it a little more. There was one of the women in the program, she was older, and she tried to rally, you know, she wanted to hold a potluck, and she was upset about the nude advert, you know, women, nude women in the sweets catalogs used to advertise showers, you know, shower enclosures and things, and she was upset about that. And I remember thinking, I I'm in a dorm. I don't have access to something to make, you know, a potluck type of thing. Hold on. Yeah, yeah, no worries. You know, secondly, I just, I said, you know what? I really just need to focus on being a great architect. I, the fact that I'm a woman is going to have to come along with it. 
you know, and I, I didn't, I was in a sorority. I, I joined a sorority because, and I talked with my mom about it. I said, you know what, I, they're just all guys and it would be nice to just be around women, you know, like dress up for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, so we said, yeah, we think this makes sense. Let's do this. And then, you know, my sister joined as well. So, you know, there definitely was that. And and what about, what about the, in terms of the architecture education? So does the systems thinking, that you've picked up sort of intuitively from the farm start mm-hmm. to manifest at, at this point for you? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I, I still think how crazy. My fifth year thesis was a scheduled and unscheduled maintenance facility for North American coal. Yeah, I mm. mean, that's a topic someone would be doing today. And it, it was in the Badlands, and I just saw the Snohetta winning commission for the Theodore Roosevelt Memorial Library in the Badlands and that swooping contour that was exactly you know I wanted because North American coal it was strip mining and they were scraping all this rich rich you know this is this is earth that you know they from the glacial scraping all that black topsoil from Canada you know it's like rich rich Mm -hmm. black and here they were scraping that off and leaving these little mounds. There was no land reclamation at the time, just so they could get access to the coal. And, you know, that was a thing for me. I have photos of that beautiful flat landscape in the winter. You know, the, the snow literally blows over the roads. Mm. <laughs> it, it's, you know, quite dangerous to, to drive in that because you don't know where the road ends. And so here, then North American coal, leaving these and the grass would grow over, these mounds were higher than anything in the landscape. So scheduled and unscheduled maintenance for North American coal. So it was corporate branding, and I had land reclamation in the design. I had it a seamless sort of profile. It had this beautiful pond so that, and looking, because I was also, um, had an 18 credit concentration in landscape architecture. Hmm. Um, so at Penn State, that would be a minor 18 credits. But, so I understood how, you know, a lot about the soil. And um, so it was branding, corporate, greed, mm-hmm. <laughs> architecture, landscape architecture. And yeah, so definitely a systems thinking about design. But it wasn't really until I got into grad school, I took a philosophy course. Well, I was recruited by Iowa State University. Cecil Elliott was retiring as chair. And so... Meaning his first year was when you started and his last year was when you... Oh, interesting. No, no, no. Wait. So after graduation, I have a kitty here. I was practicing and this was... This was early 80s, and interest rates are sky high, and there are no jobs. And I was fortunate that I had, I was working part-time since my, the summer of my third year Hmm. in a local office, and and a a couple of offices. One actually called me and said, what are you doing during your spring breaks and summers? Could you come and, you know, design for us? So I I had Hmm. opportunities in Fargo, North Dakota. And so Cecil would, would keep calling me and saying, you know, would you like to teach? And I'd said, I don't have anything to teach. You know, I don't know what I would teach. 
And finally, you know, morphosis was was a big presence on my on my thinking at the time. And reading about their practice, they would take this large white butcher paper and stretch it out over their table through conceptually modeling you know, a conversation about a project, they'd say, you know, if budget is a big thing, someone would throw a two by four on the table, you know, on that butcher. Mm-hmm. paper. And so they would, they would sort of do that. And then the team would have a sense of, you know, so if, if someone with the most experience on the project took plan, and then the next person would take section. And if the person, you know, dealing with the sectional properties, were talking to the window suppliers, they would know, you know, because of that conceptual conversation, what to go after in terms of a window. Mm. And so I started doing that in my own, my own practice at the office. And, you know, I was always pleasantly surprised that my projects went well. They were in budget and they seemed, no one seemed to be confused in the team. And, you know, and yet it wasn't me just sort of, dictating decisions all the time. And so when this was going well, I thought, hmm, maybe I do have something to teach. So I I started at NDSU as an adjunct in 84. Mm. And I was registered and you know, they you know, and then I started writing and that was going well. I thought, wow, this is this is fun. You know, I was practicing at the time and and I didn't have committee work. So I think that's the kind of ideal, mm. <laughs> you know, practice, teach, no committee work. And so then when CISO was going to retire, the faculty, they had one of the candidates was the director of the grad program from Iowa State University. And in the Midwest, you know, Iowa State is, is a really strong program. You know, they they like to describe themselves as the Harvard of the Midwest mm. and they do, they attract some fabulous faculty. And so when, when he was up to interview, my NDSU faculty said, talk to her about getting her master's degree. You know, we want her to teach. So he did. And he said, come to Iowa state and you can write your own ticket. I said, Whoa, <laughs> okay. Well then I want both universities. I want university of, and I want Iowa State. So I was already pre- I was a registered architect. And they had at the time what was called the Iowa problem. So overnight, the, the university, the, they went from a five-year program to a 4-2. Mm. So there were a lot of students who were planning on getting that fifth-year degree. And they got, you know, ticked off about that overnight change. And they never, so they graduated with a four-year degree and they couldn't get registered. So a lot of them were around Cedar Rapids area, Iowa City, because Iowa City had a lot of the larger, Iowa City and Cedar Rapids had a lot of the larger architectural firms. Hmm. And so, you know, they had that problem. And um, I would be living in Iowa City because my husband was working for a healthcare firm, you know, architectural firm that did predominantly mm-hmm. healthcare. And so they said, you know what? If you will teach that, you know, studio, the fifth year studio for those professionals that are in that area, you know, on a, we, we picked a, a Tuesday evening and a all day Saturday. And so I taught, and then they had a faculty come over from Ames, Iowa, where Iowa State is, and he would come over on Saturday 
and work with me, but I had the, the Tuesday evening class. And so, you know, I, I helped them. Uh, uh, I mean, a lot of these practitioners were older than me and, you know, and so they were allowed to get their fifth year degree. So I did very well um, in grad school. I was able to take a philosophy, couple of philosophy courses where the whole system's thinking just, hmm. you know, was incredible. And it just aligned with everything that I knew intuitively. It just made so much sense. The rationality, the game theory, ways of, you know, proving out some of these behaviors. And so, yeah, it became my, my way of thinking and moving that into a narrative in architecture for, for an architectural thesis. And so I've, I've only taught in second year, third year, fourth year, but I've only taught my predominant course has been thesis at the fifth year or graduate level. Hmm. Even if it's in second year, I say, you know, we're going to, I'm going to teach you thesis thinking from this systems <laughs> perspective. <laughs> so. And what's the, so, the major yeah. philosophical works you're reading? What's the, the heavy hitters that, that shifted your thinking? Well, there's, you know, the, the big one was Ludwig von Bertalanffy. Hmm. And, you know, what's interesting about this is it's also, you know, post-World War II and game theory is, is being used as a strategy, you know, heading into the Cold War. And so all of this is coming together for me. So it was largely, uh, you know, game theory literature. And yeah, I mean... So are you studying game theory while simultaneously going through nuclear bomb drills? <laughs> yeah. Is that happening at a... you, know, you know actually the the folks that were were big into that they were you know a little frustrated that their work was tied to that. They yeah. didn't see it that way as, at all. And so for me as well as it was um and the the courses that I took were it, it was more of a social, you know, see, seeing how economics and pop culture or, you know, politics, how all of these are moving together. So it wasn't necessary, you know, we, we knew that game theory was being used for, for strategy, but it wasn't, I don't recall any of my classroom discussions being about that. Yeah. How so? How um are you? Are you a product of your times with regard to this in terms of the interest in game theory and systems within architecture? Or so I, I talked with a writer slash architect slash teacher out of LA by the name of Orhan Ayuje, and he's I think actually comparable timelines, but mm -hmm. it's interesting. So he's been in LA for the past you know several decades now, and and it seems for them. I mean, he talked about Morphosis and Gary as being one of the you know, the front runners, the godfathers of sort of the the California scene as a whole. But it seems, mm -hmm. you know, looking at things from afar, there is this interest in that time period in very specific issues of urban justice, equity, urban yes. systems, things of this sort. But there's also this very big obsession in just form, form, mm -hmm. aesthetics, and, and that being tied to philosophy. So are you, in terms of your peer group, your architectural circles, are you a um, an oddball in terms of your interest in this or is it is it actually part of the major current i i think i'm i'm definitely you know think about it and and i we just had a symposium friday and i presented my my book we had a virtual book signing and book kind of presentation 
Congrats. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. Beautiful. Has has um, the has the has COVID uh changed your book tour? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um yeah, it, actually if you try to order it, they're sold out. They they're replenishing, but they sent me um I don't think it's I think I had a hundred books. Um and so they're slowly disappearing, but there's st I still have some for sale. That's great. Congrats. No, and you're already working uh, yeah. on the next one. Is the <laughs> I don't know. I actually have I've mentioned this to one of our new hires that the, the next book I'd love to write would be more like a novel. This summer I read The History of Yellow Fever mm. and it was written in such a way that very much a novel, you know, kind of describing, and again, and, and a systems type of narrative where this boat was coming in along the Mississippi and there was Mardi Gras, this big party brewing and all of this is, you know, so it just sets up the stage for, all of these things and then these different policy things that were going on in the city. And so it's, I thought, wow, this could be fascinating. And I'd love to write it with regard to the tunnel project, mm. the gateway project in New York City. So mm -hmm. I've been tracking, tracking that and, you know, weaving the politics and the economics and, you know, Trump was all for it until, <laughs> mm. yeah. so I'd like to write that. But, but back to the, this is a kitty. Yeah. <laughs> So in the symposium, I was saying, you know, when interest rates are that high, 18, 19%, and so the only people that are building are banks and universities or people who can afford that kind of money, no private residence is going to be built. And I remember in the office, you know, it was like, it's no surprise then that if every corner is $1,000, that you end up with a triangulated building. Hmm. You, know, you eliminate a corner or that structure has to become ornament. And I feel like everything just, just, and I think intuitively I didn't buck that because, you know, coming in from a farm background, everything has to be productive. You know, everything has to work. There can't be this, mm. you know, sort of falsifying and so it didn't bother me that we were really, really finding these efficiencies in our design, in form making, you know, things had to be, a, and I felt like we, we ended up with volumes um, that gave experience more so than, you know, it certainly wasn't the postmodern hmm. layering of, of anything. But, okay, so I graduated from grad school in uh, 90 then and and I it was a three semester thing for me so I I did my writing and I ended it just at the time when all the interviews for positions you know I could travel around the country looking mm. for a teaching position and I was had a, a lot of interest because you know I was a registered architect a woman you know filling a quota and that was the first time I sensed wow wow this is this is so insulting. Hmm. And, and I almost quit looking for one because I didn't feel like people were interested. They were interested in the quota, not, not me, my work. And so finally, the dean from University of Utah called, and I had applied to all these places. So, you know, I'm looking. And he said, we're very interested in you. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm sure you are. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what exactly? You know, I was a little, you know, put off by it. 
but he then described what I was doing and, and, you know, really could talk very deliberately to what I could contribute. I said, okay, all right, all right, well, let's talk. And then it, it helped that he sent me a picture of the Wasatch Mountain Range where, you know, my office windows view <laughs> mm. of that beautiful landscape in Salt Lake City. And so we went there and it was a superb teaching opportunity for me. I, I really, I got launched there. I was the only woman. I'm always, you know, the only woman. And my second year teaching, the dean, it was a, a, a single college. So my dean was my chair. Our committee representation is university level representation. And University of Utah is a liberal arts. The landscape architecture was up in, um, what's the school up there? Um, anyway, so a liberal arts school, university, and an architecture program in there. And my second year teaching, my dean nominates me for the highest teaching award the university gives out. It's a university professorship. And it's usually been saved for someone retiring as a thank you send off. And so myself and another collaborator were the first ones invited as junior faculty. We weren't even tenured to participate in this. And it had a three-part stage in, in selection for it. The first was you're nominated by your dean. And so we were that. And then the second was to create, author a dream course. Hmm. And ours was uh, getting past the gaze, we called it. And again, it's a, it's a whole systems part of thinking, um, Walter Benjamin. Um, and so we were interested in looking at community work through the lens of you know, the, the, the tip is, if you want to look at a problem, look at who prospers from the problem, not who mm. benefits from the problem, you know. So uh, wrote the dream course, and we got selected through that. And then it was down to an interview. And just when that was supposed to happen, I got a call that my dad was dying mm. up in North Dakota. So I said, well, I'm out of the running. and went home, was with my, my sister and my dad. We're, we were at his side for about 30 minutes before he passed. And, you know, went through the funeral, came home grieving, you know, just didn't think anything of it. And I got a letter in the mail, congratulations, I had won this university professorship. And I went to my dean, I said, how did this happen? I, I had to duck out for, you know, I couldn't do the interview. And he said, well, your students came forward and asked if they could interview on your behalf. <laughs> wow. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I, that gave me, a, it was a year off to teach that course and at a symposium and got cash prize and all kinds of cool things. My portrait hangs in the hallowed halls of the socio-liberal arts building. Mm -hmm. and, you know, most of them are retiring folks and then these two young <laughs> people <laughs> at the end of the line, you know, whatever. But the fun part was at the end of that. So at the end of the year, you know, we had this big gallery exhibition and showcase and the work was fabulous. We worked with the university hospital. And when we, when the students made the presentation of one of their projects, the, the planner, the, the campus planner came forward and he said, you know, what you guys have done takes one one kind of courage to do what we have to do. And they're always hobbled by politics and process and whatever, but we should be doing what you and your students are doing, you know, just doing the right thing. 
and um, and then uh, so we were all the faculty were gathered at a in our conference room, kind of year end conversation about what we did, what our you know work was, and any places for improvement and this and that. And one of the senior faculty, which you know I still marvel at this, Tony Serratacombe. I don't think I ever spoke to him. He was one of these, you know, godlike senior faculty. And he would, I'm sitting at the table, this long conference table, and I'm in the corner. <laughs> you know, mm. I don't even have a presence really at the table. I'm sort of perched at the corner. And Tony's confident enough to be leaning back on two legs of his chair, you know. And he said, I think what Professor Lindbergh did in her studio. And I thought, oh no, oh no, because it was different, you know. He said, I think what Professor Lindbergh did in her studio should be a vision for this school. Uh, uh. I thought, wow. So, you know, I had that kind of support at this program. And it was shortly after that, they wanted to tenure me early. And I said, oh, I'm not that in a hurry. But shortly after that, Penn State recruited me to come here. And what's what's that year? That is uh, fall of '95. I got okay. here, and you've been so, you've been there since, yeah. Uh-huh. Been here since. I just got my 25 year chair. Yeah, that's that's right. quite something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a big deal. That's a nice big deal. So yeah, yeah, it's been you know, and and to the the segue into fashion, um, I had I have some dates here that I wanted to give the rundown. So in 2010 to 13, I was awarded, we went to a a holiday party at the Alumni Center and the Associate Dean of Research declared, I didn't know this data, but he said that I had the largest external grant in the history of the college. And so then in 2012, I was promoted to full professor. I was the first woman and the department at the time was over hundred years old to be promoted. I was the first one to be tenured and promoted to associate, and then the first to be promoted to full. 2013 to 15, I held an endowed chair of design innovation, uh, mostly because of the work product that was coming out of that big grant. It was with NSF, NIH, and funded by Fogarty International. What was the the grant around? It was on uh, looking at the U.S.-Mexico border. Hmm. And looking at health disparities, community design, our whole point was that policy biases uh, stability, the status quo, and yet nothing about that arena that it's trying to address is, you know, static or stable. Mm -hmm. And so we were looking at that disconnect, that mismatch theory in that, and, and then who is taking up the slack and finding, you know, health clinics and uh, double double scenarios of vaccination and things like that. Mm. So it was a rich study. Um, I have most of my family now, you know, people from North Dakota, people from here retire down in Florida, people from North Dakota to retire down in Arizona. So I had familiarity with that U.S.-Mexico border. And then colleagues that I was working with were familiar with, with the U.S.-Mexico border at Texas. So, and then in California. So we had a nice group to, to study that whole area. And then in 2015, I was invited to give a TED talk. And 2016, I started gathering material for this book. It was 
not a textbook, but it's material that had been brewing since 2005 when I started teaching my a grad seminar on systems thinking. Hmm. So then I heard an interview and it really, this is part of the off book yeah. <laughs> conversation with Sophia Amoruso from Nasty Gal. Hmm. And she was young and the way she was talking about her craft was really insulting to me. She was describing how she didn't go to, you know, she, she, she was, young and her parents had money she had you know she was popular enough and could kind of move in any circle she wanted to and she didn't really go to college and she was finding herself without money at one point and she decided to go into her closet she had a myspace and she sold some of her bill blast jackets and thought oh this is easy money so hmm. she sold more of her fancy clothes and then when she ran out of her fancy clothes, she went and bought fancy, you know, some clothes and altered them a little bit, jacked the price up and sold them. And I was insulted mm. <laughs> at that, you know, that, and she was doing quite well at it. And then I heard another, I started listening to the NPRs, how I built this. And they frustrated me too. Um, in first, it seemed like the only people Guy Raz would interview were the people who were into, you know, like sold their company for a, several million or a billion or something like mm. that. And I heard Kate and Andy Spade, you know, talk about, about their company. And it was a similar message. Uh, you know, they were young and staying at their friends, sleeping on their floor. Um, you know, this, it just seemed like a, that stereotypical narrative about throw it all to the wind. <laughs> yeah. um, and then it, it, then, you, you know, then you sell it for a billion dollars and she was all giggly about it. And I just thought the the little bit that I knew about the manufacturers and the history of fashion and, and even, I mean, this is fairly recent. So thinking about fast fashion and the labor I just thought it was insulting that from a systems thinking perspective, I can't just think about the garment itself without thinking about labor, without thinking about the environment and materials and waste. And for someone to be sitting on a stage and telling an audience that this was just, you know, sort of giggly work was, was a, a bother to me. Yeah, And then a flip side to that, the, the founder, the CEO of Patagonia, was a completely different story. Now, here was a guy who loved the sports, you know, outdoor sports and recreation and would be climbing and thinking about equipment and the clothes that would work better and, you know, sort of was inspired out of his actual interest and engagement in, in that world and created his company. And also, he retained 100% ownership of the company, but he said he planned to, you know, he, he paid his people well and um, had daycare and mm. gave them, you know, all the freedom to start their own thing. So, you know, here was another guy who's thinking about the apparel industry and it's serving a particular world. And so I thought, you know, it's easy to be inspired by some people who have made it big in the world, but I, I feel like I was I was more inspired by these people who were in, insulting the, the whole effort. <laughs>
But it's, it seems like you're, I mean, if you think about them, I, I feel like I've had similar instances with regard to writing, I suppose. The, the writing is a reaction to something in a, in a sort of negative light, I suppose. I always found that kind of motivation gets you to sprint really well, <laughs> but maybe doesn't keep you in the long term. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't keep the pace going in the long term. So for you, do you find now when you mention it, I mean, you can sort of tell the emotion about it, but is it the, are you thinking more of, that must have vanished from your mindset. No, to a great degree. I yes. mean, yeah. Right. Well, and in fact, then she went bankrupt. You know, Sophia went bankrupt. Yeah. And the company, I mean, at, at one point, she had a, her own fulfillment center in Kentucky. And, you know, so it's one of those things, wow, this is, if you really, it, you know, it takes a lot to, to research and stay on top of these things. And, you know, one step at a time, carefully, lovingly, you know, knowingly work this through. And, and so, I mean, I think she definitely was a lesson in what not to do. Yeah. Um, so, so, so what yeah, year, I mean, you, you hear the first interview in 2016, you said mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. And then you, so you dive into fashion as a, no, I, think, I think that story was 2010. Okay. Um, or okay. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I don't, you know, I saw it on a YouTube. I don't know how I stumbled <laughs> on it, but it was, you know, one of those serendipitous things. Um, but are you working in but, fashion at, at all before you witnessed this interview or as a, okay. Well, you know, the sort of neat collision after I had the Ted talk and was start gathering the material for the book as 2016. And I remember thinking, you know, here I am at the top of my game and the clothes that I've want to wear uh, you know I didn't have time really to sew my own things I didn't have access to the materials that I imagined I would want and I have another sort of neat inspirational moment I think this is this is what really triggered it and so the guy what's his name oh what's his name he, he starred he was um cypher in the matrix and uh, <laughs> yeah he, oh Joey, Joey Pantalonia, yeah. Pantalonia or something. He, he was in our building one day and I heard him. There was a group of students he was talking to in one of the crit spaces. And I said, what's going on down there? And they said, oh, it's the guy from his cypher from the Matrix. <laughs> and I thought, what? His daughter was in the um, musical performance major at Penn State. And so he was there to see her and was talking to a group of students, music students, theater students, you know, architect, whatever would want to come and hear him. So I went down there. I didn't have my, you know, CD, DVD or whatever of the movie, but I had a French cuff purple shirt that I was wearing and I had a silver marker and I got, it, got him to sign it for me, autograph my French cuff. But I noticed how he, the clothes he was wearing it was just a simple, you know, white shirt, uh, jeans, a cowboy boots, a belt, even his dog. Everything about him was so polished and awesome. And yet it was normal, you know, it mm. wasn't, it wasn't a design that was quirky or, you know, trying to call attention to itself or anything like that. And I thought that it was pure context appropriate and the materials were fabulous mm. and I thought that's you know it wasn't calling attention to the clothes but it was the person and I thought that's that's what it should be all about and I you know it's very hard to find 
something like that. So, you know, as I was just sort of listening to him and studying him and, you know, noticing all of these things, even his dog was like perfectly (laughs) styled and groomed. Um, I thought maybe I have to put together a, a boutique, you know, I have to travel the world and find pieces like this that would put you know, curate that story. Mm. And so I signed up for, you know, I formed my company enough to get get a ticket into the trade shows. And I went to the, the, the clothing trade show in New York City and walked in and was like so disappointed because here it all was, the same old ugly stuff, uh, you know, trying too hard. And, you know, if it was expensive, then it was dry clean only. And, it you know, I thought, oh my God, no, I don't. I don't like any of this. I thought I thought this would be the mecca. I thought this, you know, these were all the designers showcasing their work. So and is this um, in the in the garment district itself? No, this is at the Javits Center. Okay. Oh. You know, this is you know just a big, and it, it's hundreds and hundreds of exhibitors coming. And so the plan is, then that's retail. You're supposed to buy the retail um, orders right, for your right. own shop. So I thought, ah, geez. And I thought, so do I have to make this myself? (laughs) (laughs) And so then I signed up for a different trade show. This is the fabric and trim show. And same thing back at the Javits Center. And this time I walked in and it's like, wow, this is what I want to do. And so I, you know, you can order sample yardage about four yards or something like that. So ordered up material that I was interested in and started prototyping. So once I had my prototypes, then I thought, now I have to find someone who will start to work this into production. And I first started, I thought, I'm not only going to be made in the USA, but I'll be very local. I'll start with Philadelphia. Mm. And I found a lady there and uh, she was so on the take. Her work was so bad and she charged me, you know, a lot of money up front. You know, so this is where you don't have a degree in fashion design right so you 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 learn it the hard way but again I just thought okay that's an issue for her she'll have one client but no repeat clients Mm -hmm. when you work so then I found another lady in New York City it was kind of a similar thing just sort of overcharged you and you know she did she did decent work but very unprofessional Mm. um, approach to to things and so then about that time, I was getting ready for my sabbatical, and I I had found another through Makers Row. It's predominantly a website organization, and they're supposed to be this clearinghouse for makers and manufacturers, and they were representing apparel a lot, you know, and anything, you know, accessories, anything that you would want to make, they were representing those types of people. And so I found a guy who he'd written a lot of articles. He'd always been kind of a spokesperson for Maker's Row. So I thought he must be trustworthy out of Cleveland. And so I contacted him and he made my first item, but he messed up on the the cuff. My son was able to actually turn it into an opportunity. Um, My son is a good sewist as well. But the ethical part of working with him was was unfortunate. You know, it's like I'm still trying to track down the pattern that that I paid for, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. So was, again, learning from someone who was hardly a quality person. But then the lady that 
um, I initially met through the incubator startup at Penn State. She was working with another guy to get him launched. And she was, you know, too busy to take me on initially. But I contacted her and I said, you know, do you have an opening now? Can you take me? And mm. she said, yes. So um, she had a connection with a factory that that is in, it's on 39th Street in in the garment district. And so he now has made, um, he's working on the third, fourth, and fifth piece for me. Hmm. And we're prototyping um, um, some men's pieces. We're starting with some men's pieces. So now the quality of the work is superb. The materials are superb. I'm thrilled. I'm absolutely thrilled with these. And what's the, and so what's I, the size of the, the factory? Um, they only make 50 at a time hmm. in a small batch. So they make 50 items at a time. And um, I toured the facility. So, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased. And, and she works with another very sweet company that does the patterns, the marking and the grading. Are you familiar with all of those steps? Yeah, well? yeah. This was the the study yeah. for, for PhD yeah. actually was very much around this. Yeah. But so what's the turnaround time for, I mean, when you give an order, uh, how many people work on it and how, how quickly do they turn it around for you? Yeah, I don't know. You know, COVID hit us. Yeah, which pre-COVID. Me, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, 2017, I was, uh, I went out to Arizona to work on my book and we had the one piece made in Cleveland. And then when I came back and and realized, I mean, the the, the it was a unisex hoodie, and the material was uh, this beautiful, fabulous material from a mill in Italy. It's just fabulous, gorgeous. And when 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 the box came from him, I mean, it was virtually falling apart, and everything was just sort of thrown in a mishmash. I had to, you know make sure everything was laundered and cleaned up. Um, and that's just unacceptable. Mm. And so, and then not owning up to the the mistake he made on my, on the cuff. Um, and it was clear, you know, when you look at my prototype, what was there and he just, he just would not budge on it. So, you know, you, you're faced with, do you sue this guy or do you, you know, just move on? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so now working with this factory in New York City, everything comes, you know, it's, it's beautiful on little hangers in a you know, plastic bag and carefully, carefully, carefully packaged and nothing shifts around. And um, But what's the what's the turnaround uh, time for something like that? I mean, when you when you send the prototype or the design of it, um do you know how many people work on it and how quickly they can? Yeah, I don't know how, you know, like if, if they have their full, because I haven't been to the factory since COVID, but I think they had five or half a dozen ladies yeah. sewing. And there was a, a, a cutting table, a couple of guys doing special cutting uh, and, and taking from the bot roll and laying the fabric out. They have a guy special for ironing. You know, so there's a, a staff there, probably, you know, a dozen people. Well, it sounds um, like pretty elite, uh, elite level craft, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And, you know, frankly, that's for me, this is a, this is a hobby. This is a, this is a passion. This is a pet project. And I want to be able to, <laughs> I want to be able to be inspired by the, by the material and, 
you know, I'm not approaching this as fast fashion. So the turnaround, I would say, you know, from the time we, so what I assure them is the, the prototype I give to them is going to be the, the perfect fit. I don't want to muck around with the fit at all. That's exactly what I want. I have a husband and wife in town here that I use as my fit models. Hmm. And, you know, so I get it to where I want it. And I don't want any re-dyeing, you know, retooling of that. And so they just have to make a sample. And then, you know, I tested on my people here again. Pre-COVID, I could drive in. I brought fabric into New York. <laughs> you know, now we're having to mail everything. Um, so we've got some buffer time with that too. And so then she makes the sample. They make the sample, the factory does. And then I approve it. And then, you know, I give them a cutting ticket for the sizes. And she makes the pattern and then has it graded and marked. So right now, I ordered fabric. It's coming from Japan for a city pant and a wide leg trouser and a men's city pant. And so the fabric will be here October 2nd. And prior to that, it's probably been close to a month. We've been sort of back and forth sending the, the prototype and mm. into... So probably a month and a half before I'll have the delivered pieces. Interesting. So that includes troubleshooting and so forth, I guess. So what's the, um, if you think about your design mind as an architect versus uh, this fashion industry, do you see something different in how you operate? Is there? I do. Well, one question in particular, I guess, is the um, in architecture, there's always this underlying obsession with the concept, the party and so forth. But then there's this, um, it's actually in the, in a discussion with Brooke Muller, the fellow that you were talking about also, uh, systems thinking and so on. But he was talking about how when he was collaborating with an artist, the artist was very much confused by the concept of a concept. Like it, it didn't <laughs> seem like it was a necessary burden to take on within a project that why don't we just make good architecture? And that is that a concept? <laughs> was the question he would ask. But for you in fashion, are you able to get rid of some of the baggage of architecture when you start start the design process move along with it or you know so if i'm going to be an emphasis on this beautiful material you know and in a in a critique of fast fashion and the frustrating part is this thing that you buy at gap or zara you know it's good for a season and then you throw it out you know and it doesn't look good on you while you're wearing it and so if my emphasis is going to be on fit and fabric you know I want something that's going to last I want and I'm critical of the the trendy story you know like Joan Rivers would say just because it zips doesn't mean it fits (laughs) (laughs) right that everyone has to be and I find this is worse on the east coast than the west coast the west coast people like to look different from one another but the east coast everybody has to look the same Mm. And, you know, so irregardless of body type, everybody has to find themselves in the same look. So I, I wanted, there, there are silhouettes that are flattering on most any body. And I wanted to stay with those silhouettes so that, the, the again, taking emphasis not on the, the clothes as, you know, an emphasis can be that it, it's not going to fit, right? If, if something doesn't fit, then you're noticing it. And so um, if, if I'm trying to draw attention to uh, this, this person, you know, uh, Joey 
Panalonio, what his name is, you know, he, he's no rip buff, perfect looking person, but you know, he was so put together that nothing, nothing screamed, this isn't working. Yeah. So, so, you know, working with that, if that's my site, you know, that's my muse, you know, that's what I was after. And that the fabrics right now are so amazing. Yes, there's, there's the argument about virtually everything has a splash of polyester, which is, is, you know, not good. Um, but the, the cottons, cotton is the dirtiest material, you know, in terms of the pesticides and, hmm. uh, you know, and nitrates and phosphate that, that, you know, goes into making sure we have cotton and the, the wool, the, the animals, you know, the leathers, <laughs> you know, so the natural materials have their critique as well. So the real solution against fast fashion is not to make disposable pieces, you know, make pieces that you can inherit. Many of the silhouettes that I'm inspired by are ones that I got from my mom. You know, I, I have a coat that actually has a mink collar, you know, and mine would have a faux, <laughs> faux fur collar. Mm -hmm. um, but the silhouette is fabulous. It's, you know, it's the, the T-length sleeve and, you know, gorgeous fit. And so I'm interested in making pieces like that. Then I'm also interested in not just the wardrobe, you know, the, the clothes part, but how does that fit into the minimalist wardrobe? It fits into the minimalist suitcase. It fits into the minimalist resort. Hmm. Um, and so there's a whole conversation about how I want to be able to build some base pieces and then build on that. And so people can actually start a wardrobe and if they have, you know, so we're, we're numbering the wardrobes like the Lindbergh capsule, hmm. you know, then, you know, first, first layer, I'm designing these, these base pieces. And so then the next layer could be a more of a statement jacket that would be, you know, timeless. I mean, some of these, you know, little opera jackets and you can wear over a little black dress. They'll never go out of style. Um, and so that's the approach I'm taking. So I feel like there's, there is a system that, that I'm excited to build, you know, put together like this. Uh, so and it seems like durability, limited numbers, uh, you know, understanding the intricacies of materiality and so forth have become the cornerstones of this, right? And you're, and you're picking specifically the piece as an extension of the person, right? You're, you're talking about silhouettes, mm -hmm with this mm -hmm. right that's really interesting yeah i was i was quite curious about how you because if the i mean i left the study of the garment district i suppose and it just feels like this intricate much more mm -hmm. intricate mess or cloud than i could have ever imagined so i was curious how you made sense of all that um i, I imagine a lot of time goes into sourcing right yes and you know it's fun i've i've met now a couple of, of people who, you know, so now I'm, I'm able to email David Bloom from Zentex and say, you know, do you have this and that? And it, it's nice. And I remember when, when I went to the clothing trade show, I invited one of my students who was living in New York City. He, 
works with interior design and he said, yeah, I'd love to go with you, you know, to see the inside behind the scenes about how this all works. And we would walk into the, and most of the buyers are young girls there, you know, buying for their, for the stores. And so Justin, my student, said to me, Darla, are you noticing this? Because when I would walk into one of the booths, I would get, you know, so much attention. And so here here I am, CEO and founder of my company. That's not common Mm. (laughs) for that person to be doing the buying. So I feel like when I, now with the fabric and trim as well, I feel like I have, maybe it's my maturity or, you know, the folks at the incubator startup said, you've already proven you're a success in your field. So there's a level of trust that might come with that. Hmm. So sourcing, you know, the company that I worked with to find the the fabric in Italy, that was amazing. And that's Bernstein Textiles, gorgeous, gorgeous fabrics. I mean, I'm working on a men's t-shirt that I had my youngest son, I had him tested because he's he works out. He's more buff. And, and both my sons said, mom, you've got to get the cut right. You got to get mm. the men's shirt. And so it's a t-shirt that it, it feels it's, it's a washable cashmere. And so, you know, when you get a hold of some of these materials, it's just, I, I don't know. It's like a candy store. Washable and cashmere. How does that, how does that? Yeah. It, well, it just feels like cashmere. It's just, it just feels luxurious. So Darla, one question for you. Now, we spent like, I don't know, a really long time getting to this point of when you're entering fashion. One thing I'm curious, I imagine you have a lot of stories embedded within this, but would you be interested in pausing this for the moment and then restarting in sort of a part two? And we can go sure. through your entire uh, um, garment story. Because one of the, um, you know, the beginning questions that I had emailed you about was sort of the complexities of the garment industry. and how do you untangle that and how do you weave a meaningful path through it? I assume that's not a one minute answer. So <laughs> right, <laughs> if, you're, right. if you're okay with it, we could do a little pause and, and try I, to regroup. I'd in like be a delighted week or so. to. Yeah. I think because I, you know, I feel, um, yeah, it's going, it's going all right. And I have thoughts on marketing. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think I'm coming at it from a position of critique. I've had so many young people come to me and, and think, you know, because I may not know social media, perhaps, or, you know, I can help you with that. I can help. I thought when I talk to them, they don't get what I'm trying to do. So I think, no, you can't help me with social media. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a, I have a, a, a position about all that. And I was kind of delighted to hear on the, the show Shit's Creek when Dan Levy, when he, I don't know if you're familiar with that show, but he talked that he's he's got a little boutique that he's opening and he wants to do a soft launch. And mm. his parents are like, who wants to do a soft launch? Who doesn't want this thing to be, you know, an overnight success? And no, I don't want, you know, the quieter, the better, you know. So I feel like there's a, an ethos about how to do this slow and, <laughs> you know, not a big splash. I'd rather, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more inspired by, the people who aren't advertising and you mm. know, find out about this a little more mystique or a little more. So, I mean, I only have, uh, you know, 50 items of, of one blouse and, you know, 50 items of each piece. And so I don't want this to, to hit big like that. You know, mm. certainly I want to sell them, 
but also because their apparel made to inherit, you know, this is from the 2017 collection and catalog. And, you know, so um, the older they get, the better they are. Mm. <laughs> so I feel like I've got some kind of um, reverse thinking about a lot of these things, but it seems to be working. So no, I think that's, yeah, I think that's fascinating. I mean, I mean, the, I had read a a good bit about the garment industry and the fashion industry as a whole before, you know, the PhD studies had began. And then after diving into it, I realized just how much more complicated it is. And I Mm -hmm. remember talking to, um, it was actually a fashion designer back in, I think it was when we were in Rhode Island, but she was she was linked to one of the big names and she was I think probably in a similar wavelength as you, but she was just getting exhausted by the nature of the industry as it is and she was trying to find a way a way out of it essentially, like stay within it but to pave a different path. So, yeah, if you have time, I guess we can I'll email you about it, but we can figure out what to do in the next two or three weeks and and we can set up yeah. part 2. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, there was a, a documentary, Michael Kors, someone was interviewing him and saying, what's the worst part about the the fashion world? And he goes, the calendar. You know, so I thought, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. you know, I'm not going to do that. I am because, you know, if I'm going to be small batch and everybody fighting to get into a factory and, you know, it, you, then you have to be big batch to to get in, you know, get not bumped from the factory schedule. And so then you're backing up and you're making sure the hustle to get this order and this sourced and do this. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do any of that. I'm not. Yeah. It (laughs) seemed, it seemed like a very stressed person I was talking to in, in Rhode Island that was trying to Mm -hmm. find a way. I I think she went back into it and, and left it eventually, but I can't remember the, I can't remember the status anyway, Darla. So, so why don't we pause there and, um, I'll get a. I'll, I'll write you an email soon, and we can we can put this out as part one. All Thank right, Darla. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Yep.